0: Welcome to The Jolt. It's the 9th of February. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. It's Friday, so that means Kira will be joining me later to go over the week's big news and look ahead to what's happening next. We'll be talking the EU's 2040 target, discussing the results of an online poll we asked you listeners to vote in, heat pumps, carbon budgets, and much more. Stay tuned for that. First, let's take a look at the big climate and energy stories making headlines around the world. European companies set a new record for power purchase agreements in 2023. Businesses signed up to 10.4 gigawatts worth of PPAs, smashing the previous record of 7.7 gigawatts set back in 2021, according to the Resource Platform. Spanish and German companies accounted for 50% of that clean power capacity, with Germany forecasted to challenge this year for the top spot in the rankings. It was a year of firsts for PPAs. Hungary, Slovenia and Portugal all signed up to their first contracts. The first agreement combining generation and storage was signed, and the first PPA for green hydrogen production was also approved. Check the show notes for a link to a great episode of What Matters that's all about PPAs. United States President Joe Biden's decision to pause new LNG export permitting could come under attack soon. Republican leaders are looking to amend a bill that provides aid to Ukraine and Israel to include a provision that overturns the government's moratorium. A top energy department official told a Senate committee yesterday that the US has enough capacity to supply its allies and that the pause on new exports is in keeping with climate goals, according to The Hill. The European Union's Green Deal chief has urged the union's main lender, the European Investment Bank, to be less dogmatic when it decides which energy projects to support. Maros Shevchevich was addressing the EIB's annual forum, and his statement is seen as a subtle reference to nuclear power, which the bank does not fund. There's no ideological reason for that policy. The EIB simply considers new nuclear projects a bad return on investment. The lender is now under new management after Spain's former finance minister, Nadia Calvino, took over, but it is still unlikely that this will mark a shift in the bank's position. The United Kingdom's fusion power project, JET, set an energy record during its last test before being decommissioned. Scientists were able to generate 69 megajoules during a five-second fusion blast, according to results published this week. 69 megajoules is about enough to boil a couple of bathtubs worth of water. The test, which took place late last year, used the same chemical reaction that powers the sun, reaching temperatures of more than 150 million degrees. JET is being wrapped up after nearly 40 years of operation and will be replaced by a new facility that aims to feed actual power into the UK's electricity network. Canada's parliament approved a new trade deal with Ukraine, but had to do it without a single vote from the Conservative Party. The group had stated that it supports Ukraine against Russia's invasion, but that the new commerce pact obliges both Kiev and Ottawa to impose carbon pricing. Carbon taxes and carbon markets are a red line for the Canadian Tories, but the ruling Liberal Party of Justin Trudeau insists that the language used in the pact is non-binding and aspirational only. And a first-of-its-kind test has managed to capture carbon emissions on board a cargo ship. The Seabound Project reports that during a two-month-long trial, specialised technology was able to demonstrate a capture rate of 78% for CO2 and 90% for sulfur emissions. These emissions were transformed into solid calcium carbonate pebbles that were then offloaded at port and can even be sold as a construction material. The system can be retrofitted to existing ships and takes up the space of a couple of containers. During this trial, only about one tonne of emissions were captured each day due to weight constraints on board. More tests are planned. That's it for your news updates today. Now it's time for our regular Friday feature, and a closer look at what Kira and I thought were the big talking points this week. So we've got to start with the big, big news of the week, haven't we? We've been talking about it all week. As we expected, EU Commission published its recommendation for a 2040 climate target. It's going to sit nicely between that 2030 and 2051 we've already got in place. Which I, I, it's kind of strange to think about, really, isn't it? That you've got the 2030, 2050, and it's taken us this long to get the one in the middle. But yeah, so were there any surprises for you for what they actually came out with, Kira?
1: I think if anything, it was a bit boring. It's one of those EU announcements, which you've known about for so long. You've seen the leaks. I mean, sometimes leaks change, but when it's a big headline target like this, it's very unlikely to change. And then almost there was the anti-climax of, remember, this isn't legally binding. This is just a recommendation. We don't really have any power over this. This is the next commission. So if anything, I was surprised by how kind of flat it felt. And also, you know, you had the EU climate commissioner, Wipka Hoekstra, and one of the key things he said was, this is a recommendation. And like you say, it is a bit odd that this was the last thing, but I think it's also the kind of step between. So in some ways you have 2030, which is huge, it's a massive push for emissions reductions. And then you have 2050, which is climate neutrality. And again, that's just a major shift for an economy. And now we're just using this as a stepping stone. So we kind of knew whereabouts it would be. I don't know, did it take you by surprise?
0: The only really thing that surprised me was that there were very few of our colleagues from other outlets who did make the mistake of saying that, yeah, this is the new climate target, or this is even the proposal for the new climate target. I think there was a general consensus that this was only fairly interesting and and fairly important for the the whole thing that we spend our life writing about and talking about.
1: To be honest, we've had the energy crisis, we have the ongoing climate crisis. I think there is just more media awareness of these types of things.
0: I mean, on that very topic, we asked our very nice listeners this week to vote on what they thought would happen with the EU governments, the council that have to back this as well. They're normally the ones that try and derail everything or water it down or be a bit more pessimistic about the chances of it. And we basically asked you on LinkedIn and Twitter, X, whether or not you think that EU governments would back this 90% target. Yes or no? Very simple. And on LinkedIn... The pessimists won. Fifty three percent of you said no, they won't, and on Twitter, fifty five percent said yes, they will. Which the wrong way round in my head. I thought that the pessimists would be on would be on Twitter. Was, it, was that a surprising result for you?
1: It gave me flashbacks to Brexit, the, the very close margin. I think it was really interesting to see that opinions were almost completely divided on it.
0: The, the cursed ratio nearly reared his head again. and um, We thought it would be fine actually, if one of us takes each answer and actually takes a minute or two to say why we think that it would be this way. Kira is going to go first and uh, go for yes, and then I'm going to play devil's advocate and say why I think no.
1: I got forced into a corner of making a decision.
0: <laughs> I asked you very nicely which one you wanted.
1: <laughs> I would have been that happy journalist of just being like, you know, we're neutral, we're going to see what happens, but no. So when forced to make a decision... Uh, I think tentatively, yes. And for a few reasons. I mean, partly, Poland was the major issue. The other thing links back to what we were talking about earlier, that this just isn't as controversial a target as 2030 and 2050. It is the midpoint and it is just a trajectory that is already going to happen. And then my, my third point for this, which might be completely redundant if everyone hates it, is that they would now have to go against the scientific advisory board. And it would be the first time, as far as I'm aware, that EU countries would fully be coming out against the advisory board. It's a fairly new thing. It didn't really exist during the climate law and the 55% of the climate law created it. I think it would be very damaging <laughs> to have countries come out against science in a way.
0: I will preface my answer by saying that I completely agree with you. And I'm only trying to argue for no because to be a bit more controversial with the debate or whatever, you could start off by mentioning the political situation, things are moving to the right. Netherlands showed that a previously very progressive country on climate is now likely to be led by a government that thinks the very opposite. But for me, the main thing that will impact this is the money argument where people who are pushing for more ambition simply have not made a strong enough case for the cost of inaction, for not having these strong climate policies where extreme weather events, migration, all these things are going to be triggered and exacerbated. The fact that these things will cost way more than putting up loads of wind turbines and solar panels isn't in the public conscious or debate, and that's what what governments make in terms of policy. So I think from that point of view, you've got that. And then secondly, like we said, this is the commission making a recommendation that the next commission will have to act on. It doesn't bind that commission to anything, but it does set the path. And even though we know that the next commission will maybe look a bit like this one, you could have been in a situation where this commission said, right, 95%, great, we'll deal with it later. But they didn't. In fact, they did the very opposite where they went to the real bottom end of what was advised by the Scientific Advisory Board with 90%, not even at very least like Herkstra said he would argue for. So I think we could even be in a position where EU governments don't have to back 90% because by the time the commission proposes something, it won't even be at 90% because there'll be loopholes, exemptions, all this kind of thing. Like I said, I definitely am more on the yes side, but I think that these ideas about why it might not fly will definitely be part of the, the conversation anyway
1: yeah and picking up on that i think there's two interesting points first of all what you mentioned about it may not actually be 90 percent. this is the net emissions reduction it's not the actual and if you start looking at the actual actually it's a lot lower and you really need to work out what they're doing with removals and the other thing someone responded to the poll basically saying the problem isn't the target the problem is the measures that we need to do it and we could say climate neutrality by 2040 but unless we have the measures in place to bring it there, it's completely redundant saying it.
0: I think, yeah, I think maybe to just close off this segment, one of the things I would probably add is that it will probably end up being more than 90% emissions cuts because of how things are going just on markets and industry where you have renewables coming out so strongly. In in your episode yesterday where you reported about Ember's report about more renewables than ever, it's just the way things are going. That even without the target being the top level, it's the way things are heading and... We could well be in a position to even be net zero before twenty fifty, who knows? During this week, what was one of the like other news items that you thought was particularly interesting or noteworthy or underreported?
1: So I'm going to nick one of your favorite topics. Oh what? Um. <laughs> But it means you get to talk about it. The Common border adjustment mechanism, yesterday I reported that India is beginning to question whether it it breaks WTO rules, World Trade Organization rules. And I think that's always been a question that has hung over CBAM. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out on the global level, because you have other countries who are looking into CBAM as a tool, and then also you have countries which are perhaps trading with the EU and trading goods which are covered by CBAM and could be economically hit by this. So I think that's an interesting one that all of the CBAM fans slash nerds will be watching over the next uh, coming months.
0: Yes, all, all two or three of us will definitely be very interested. Um, it's definitely really interesting that India is actually starting to do something about it rather than just complaining about it. And I think it would also be super interesting to see whether or not this is just a bargaining technique with the EU saying, look, we're going to try and make this really difficult for you, unless you give us more exemptions for small and medium sized businesses or something like that, because that's a tactic that China's been using as well, where publicly they're very, this is a trade barrier, you're not being fair, you're really you know, discriminating against us, particularly but behind the scenes when you talk to people like analysts they're preparing for it. They're setting up all their different industries to have to deal with CBAM. For my news thing, it was, again, I think I picked it last week as well, something from the UK, is that the government announced that they had officially, the UK had officially halved its emissions from 1992, I think, to 2022. So that carbon budget period. Great, huge achievement. First major economy to do that. But now I think the really interesting part is going to be, They've met that carbon budget and they've exceeded it in a good way. So there is that window now of emissions surplus, basically. So on the one hand, you're either going to have the government say, well, we don't have to do as much now because we've, we're have we ahead of the curve, or use that as impetus to do even more. And at the end of this month, the, the Climate Change Committee will advise on what should be done with that surplus.
1: I find this really fascinating about the UK. I'll actually touch on this later. But one thing I find really interesting is that the UK's progress is actually very good, but the way it talks about it politically is often quite damaging. And you have these two things existing at once, which maybe we I just know it more because I come from there. So I, I see more of that and I you know, have people complain to me about it. But it is an interesting to watch in the UK. Uh,
0: we both did two episodes each this week, not including this one, of course. Um, Which one of them was your favorite or something interesting that happened on the behind the scenes with it?
1: So talking about shipping disruptions in the Red Sea, it was one of those ones where you go into it with some assumptions, but you don't know too much and you just have to speak to a lot of experts. And it was really interesting just to learn how shipping works and learn how you have these kind of, I think they described it as a conveyor belt of ships kind of going around and how if one delay happens, you then end up with issues down the line. But then also saying, well, yes, there's a conveyor belt, but you can just plan around disruptions. So actually the longer an issue goes on for, almost you can say, well, that's now an issue. So we're going to go around it and we're going to go over here. Uh, And then speaking to another expert about, okay, oil and gas markets are fine, but actually we might see an impact on clean tech. And that's interesting just looking at the different markets between oil and gas, which is quite fluid because you have shipments that can go anywhere. Whereas for clean tech, you know, if you put in an order for something, you need that order. And that's something I haven't really thought about as a difference between the traditional fossil fuels and the clean tech market that we're seeing growing.
0: Uh, That episode was a great example, I think, of being able to do job that we do well you don't just need to know about how electrons work or emissions work i mean that episode was very much logistics based and how that really affects how oil markets gas markets whatever work as well so i I really found that interesting especially the conveyor belt part because i never really thought about how these ships actually move around the globe you mentioned the clean tech part and your episode yesterday about the net zero industry act also in the eu was, was really interesting as well so i think everyone should listen to that if they haven't already. My favorite episode that I did this week was about Europe's solar power industry. Because at the moment, you read all the headlines, and it's only good news for solar, right? You see records being set, whether or not it's Brazil or Australia or even Italy installing loads of gigawatts, and the future looks really bright, fantastic. But the sheer dire straits that Europe's domestic Production industry is in is quite market which i didn't realize before actually doing this episode and and it's i mean it's all about panels from southeast asia as it normally is the dumping into the market too many of them prices collapse insolvency classic case and now basically the eu is having to think about how to actually counter that without going down the protectionist route which time and time again has just not worked and just speaking to certain people in the industry and about what they think should be done. The most interesting thing in the episode, from my point of view, was this idea that the EU should buy up a lot of the panels that are lying around in warehouses everywhere around Europe from domestic manufacturers. So you take that out of their order books, basically, so they can start making new ones, so it will freeze up their system.
1: No, I found it really interesting, and it is this kind of divide we're beginning to see between manufacturers and developers because developers in some ways would actually prefer it being cheaper. And if you have European standards, they're going to be better for human rights. They're going to be better for environmental issues, but that comes with a, a bigger price tag. And actually I found the other uh, the other episode you did this week really interesting because I kind of just had given up on tidal power. It's not something we hear spoken about very much. It's not something the EU... Has been pushing forwards on. I'm not even sure it has targets for it, or maybe they're just within the bigger renewable energy target. So to hear there's still innovations and development going on is, is really interesting.
0: From that one, it's, it's all this idea now of wind farms are up and running, they're not even built with subsidies anymore, all the permits have been granted. What else can we do about it? You know, we saw with Orsted pulling out of various markets, wind operators are going to have to get creative to make as much money as they want and maybe wave and tidal power coming into that space will it open up something. So that would be exciting to to look for, I think. Next week, you have anything planned already? I'm
1: going back to my roots as a journalist. I'm going back to the UK, which is weird. I'm not sure I've properly reported on a UK story in about two and a half years. But I'll be looking into the so-called boiler tax that the UK had done to help heat pumps and help heat pump roll out and is now kind of getting cold feet on and this links back to what we were saying earlier of where does the uk stand on green policy and so i'll be asking that and i think i will have a very special guest from another one of the, the foresight podcasts
0: god a cliffhanger to the end of the week on fantastic <laughs> i mean on that very note my favorite episode next week could potentially be the monday one where i will be introducing the listeners to our new colleague sean carroll He's joined us and he's going to be covering cities and buildings. So we're going to have a little chat about what he wants to look at, introduce him to people, get them to leave loads of contributions in the contribution section, which everyone should be doing. We always appreciate your feedback. And Sean will be there on Monday, which listeners can listen to for free if you want to listen to the rest of the episodes, because, of course, you do want to listen to the rest of the episodes. You should follow the link in the show notes. It'll get you a month-free trial on us. And if you can't find the link, you should go to foresightmedia.com forward slash onboarding, forward slash the jolt. And that should get you where you need to go. Uh, And until then, I guess it's goodbye from us. And we'll see you next week.
1: Yeah, see you next week.
0: Many thanks for joining us today. I'll be back on Monday with more, so please do join me then. We've plenty of weekend listens for you, including a brand new episode of Energy Enablers, which looks at the role of insurance in the energy transition and the latest edition of the Policy Dispatch. Thanks again to everyone behind the scenes at Foresight for helping to make The Jolt possible and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of The Jolt.